0: 2 Kings chapter 5, the defective general, Naaman, that's who we are considering. Let's get right to it because there's a lot of stuff here. Incidentally, his greatest defect was not his leprosy. It was his religion. And I think that is an excellent, or well, maybe an excellent starting point in witnessing to lost souls who are sick or struggling. Your biggest problem is not... Your circumstance, your plight, is that you don't have the right God. That's Naaman's story, and that's why these stories are here. One of the reasons. Verse 1. Now Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master, because by him Yahweh had given victory to Syria. He was also a mighty man of valor, but a leper. <clears throat> Sometimes I do some push-ups before I come out. And if I do them too close to the time, I come up I'm a little out of breath. <sighs> okay. I mean, when you get up to about 80 push-ups, not age. Uh, when you get up to that number, you're probably lying that you got up to that number. Anyway... Apparently, he commanded all of Syria's army. That's how it reads to us, commander of the army. That means he's very high up. Says that he's great and honorable. His superior, the king, also thought this of him. He stands in contrast to the Israelite warrior Joab. Joab was a great man also. He was not honorable, nor was he good, and that's why he wasn't honorable. There should be some reason for greatness, not just because we appoint this description to ourselves. Otherwise, the earth would be overspread with illegitimate reputations. A bunch of folks saying how great they are when they're not. How many despicable judges are there? that are referred to as honorable when they are dishonorable. Not all judges, I don't mean to say that at all, but too many of them. It says here in verse 1, because by him, Yahweh had given victory to Syria. Yahweh's sovereignty, of course, is beyond global. It's into the spiritual realm. But unbelievers are also indebted to God for whatever successes they may enjoy whatever achievements they gain they still owe it to God it's so simple for God to keep them from succeeding all he has to do is pinch the airline and that's that this is the story of Nebuchadnezzar he was told not to take pride anymore and go around talking this is a great Babylon that I built he was warned next time you do that not going to be a happy thing for you and that's exactly what happened in that very moment We know this, and the world is not. We're supposed to turn this light on in the dark for them, given the chance. Even though he was unaware, even disdainful of Yahweh, Yahweh was responsible for his achievements. That's what it tells us. Satan was responsible for his leprosy. That is proper perspective. But I have learned that it's not enough to have proper perspective. Because when you're getting hurt and slammed, when things are going foul, you want relief. You want God to do something. You want the miracles of the Bible to happen to you. And they don't. Not always. Then we default to faith. And by that, Satan is soundly defeated. There's no antidote that he has against a child of God that is committed to God. That's why faith is such a big deal with God. Without faith, it is impossible to please him, we're told. I have to remind myself of that. And the little things set me off sometimes. Um, He says here in verse 1, He was also a mighty man of valor, a leper, a leper still. All these victories, all these God-given victories... Victories over the people of God, they were supposed to be, but they really weren't, not the ones he was conquering, most of them, some of them were. Some of the people that he took hostage were godly people because of the ungodly people. They had to suffer. The Hebrew word for leper covers a variety of serious infections that show up on the skin, sores, even fungi. So it may not be the exact leprosy that we know today or even in the days of Christ. It doesn't matter so much because the dread of whatever it was on him, he wanted off. And he was willing to travel a hundred miles and take a lot of gold and silver and garments and a caravan and get the king's blessings just to be rid of whatever type of leprosy he had. Apparently, from verse 11... It was a certain area of his body and not his entire body. We'll get to that when we get to verse 11. Again, not lessening the dread. In fact, it may have been worsening. It may have hurt. It may have itched. It may have done both. Well, whatever it was, he wanted to be rid of it. Imagine him saying, Why why am I so successful as the commander of the army? In favor with the king. No need, physical need of anything, or material need of anything. And yet, my body is cursed. I've got this leprosy. It marred everything for him. He is a likable man. And the characters that we meet, before we get to Gehazi, where he stumbles, they're all likable. Well, there's one or two, we'll point them out. Verse 2. And the Syrians had gone out on raids and had brought back a captive young girl from the land of Israel. She waited on Naaman's wife. Well, her wife, his wife was always late, so she's always waiting on her. <laughs> of course, no, she's a maidservant. These raids were unlawful and hostile border crossings from Syria into the promised land for loot and for slaves, well, enslaving people. They weren't slaves when they <laughs> arrived. They were slave when, slaves when they took them out. The sole cause of these raids was idolatry in the life of those who were called to a high standard of believing God. Leviticus 26, and it's all over the Old Testament. We know this, but it is helpful to be to have it repeated from time to time. I will set my face against you, and you shall be defeated by your enemies. Those who hate you shall reign over you. And of course, that reaches all the way, you know, and even into the days of the Romans. But it was present here that God was using the Syrians to punish the Jewish people. And Syrian, uh, the Syrian general Naaman was his instrument. This young, this maidservant, this damsel, separated from her homeland, likely separated from her family, from the place of worship, which would have been Judah, or ways away, she, but she's in the land where there's certainly no emblem of Yahweh is there. The one that has taken her captive, at least owns her, is the one that's going to receive profound grace. In verse 3, we read, Then she said to her mistress, If only my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria, for he would heal him of his leprosy. She is a teen victim of corrupt leadership. Her country has let her down. And the invading armies have come in. Foreigners. Idolatrous foreigners have taken her away. Yet, this last is still sensitive to Naaman's plight. She's sympathetic and she wants to help. She wants him clean. She's comfortable enough to share her thoughts. This is telling us a lot about this household. If Yahweh is God of Israel, then why has he allowed me to be enslaved and put in the house of a Syrian general? She could have said that. She could have been bitter against God. There's no evidence of that whatsoever. In fact, she's still talking or uh, exalting God and his prophets. She's not lost her faith. She's saying, look, because I'm a hostage, she's not, not articulating it this way, but what is happening here, this is a defiant faith. Whatever has happened to me does not take away from who my God is and who his prophets are. So in the face of discouraging circumstances, and a stolen life, she leaves a testimony for all of us. I don't want to say for the teens especially. It's for all of us. It's for people of faith, regardless of what age you are. I would expect her to be bitter, but ministry is everywhere. Bitterness is everywhere too. It's just which one are you going to pick up off the ground? She is a lily among thorns. You know the Song of Solomon, the Beloved says about the Shulamite? Uh, She's like a lily among thorns. Compared to everyone else around her, they're thorns and she's the lily. She's the bloom, the flower. She is one of the 7,000. I have 7,000 that have not bowed the knee to me, uh, to bow, that is. I love that about this story. When Jesus said, You have unless you hate your you know, mother, father going on down the line, he was saying, drawing a contrast. Your love is to be so powerful for God that by comparison the others are thorns. It is not, of course, an encouragement to hate anyone. And she had again to suffer because of apostates, and yet still she blooms. Unmindful that her faith. Is defiant against loss. And she seems to have had a good life in this home where she is a servant. There's mutual care in spite of being a captive. She is comfortable sharing her thoughts, as I mentioned. She shows compassion for Naaman. Instead of bitterness, she says, I hope he drops dead. I mean, that would have been bitterness. And she's not ignored; she's heeded. And as a matter of fact, Naaman's wife listens to her. What does that tell us about her personality, her character? Naaman would have died a leper without her. She's a big part of the story. And then she goes off the pages in the scripture, but not in reality. We're all once you learn the lesson about her, you, you've got it. Now, Elisha the prophet, he was a legend, as just like Elijah was. She had sense enough to recall Yahweh's prophet, unlike Ahaziah the king who fell through the lattice and went sent to the god of Ekron, to which Elijah was sent to call him out. But she doesn't do it. She calls for the god, uh, the god Yahweh of the Jews, and so she says, "For he would heal him of his leprosy." What right does she have to commit the prophet to healing this unbelieving general who is launching raids into God's territory? No faith. It's just this innocent faith that she has. There is no direct scriptural statement that says leprosy symbolizes sin. However, you read Leviticus 13 and the parallels become inescapable. That leprosy in scripture is a type of sin. Then you get to the 14th chapter and there's the the cleansing of the leper. I did not say the healing because mostly the the dominant phrase for restoring someone who has leprosy is cleansing. Healing is sometimes referred to also because it is a healing still. But listen to the language from Leviticus 13. If it is deeper than the skin, it is leprosy. That is Leviticus 13, verse 3. If it spreads, well, sin does that, verse 7 of Leviticus 13. It defiles. It isolates. It is fit only for the fire. And then you get to chapter 14, and no less than 11 times it is referred to as the leprosy that is cleansed. So yes, leprosy is, in Scripture, a type of sin. We are all spiritual lepers. as a song on Terry Clark, I am that leper. Leviticus 14, 7, he shall sprinkle it seven times. This is with the blood. On him who is to be cleansed from the leprosy and shall pronounce him clean. Peter, talking about those Christians that were struggling, says they forgot that they were cleansed from leprosy. Their old sins. Second Peter one, verse nine. And of course the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sins. Verse four and Naaman went in and told his master, saying, Thus and thus said the girl who is from the land of Israel. Well, he's in a desperate state, but here is the you know the little comment of this damsel, you know, of, you know, too bad he's not in Israel because the prophet we take care of this stuff. And he's now in front of the king. And he's telling him. He's he's desperate for this cure. Verse 5. Then the king of Syria said, Go now and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he departed and took with him ten talents of silver, six thousand talents of gold, and ten changes of clothing. (sighs) I won't make any jokes about that. But here's further testimony that he meant business. By taking this abundance with him. I like Jesus, of course, he brings this up in the New Testament. The only time he mentions Elisha. Elisha is mentioned quite a few times. Elisha is only mentioned here. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha, the prophet. And none of them was cleansed except Naaman, the Syrian. Very to the point. Of course, now, they're bringing these, this gold and these, these goods, because they think that these powers are for sale, that you buy them. Naaman and the king wrongly assume that the prophet would do whatever the king commanded him to do, and that's why they're sending the letter to the king. They're making a mess out of everything, of course, supposing that the prophet and the king would be expecting some sort of payment. That's the story of Balaam, was it not? Balak, the king, hired him to come curse these Israelites. He couldn't do it. Well, he did give give them information on how to bring them down, and it was almost successful. So, the king, the Syrians, and Naaman, they associate miracles with ritual and incantation, as opposed to being subject to God. In other words... They don't expect the prophet to be obedient and moral. They just expect him to accept the money because he's got connections in the spiritual realm. But with the, of course, and that's the story when when Gehazi comes into the picture, is that Elijah is not like that. He's subject to God. He's not greedy. He's not out for gain. He wants to do the will of God. The shaman and the false prophets, they were not expected to be moral. They were just expected to be effective. They could be as as vile as as, as they wanted to be. And no one would call any attention to them. Ritual with many, even to this day, is more important than righteousness. Just get me fixed. That's all. Verse 6. Then he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which said, Now be advised when this letter comes to you that I have sent Naaman my servant to you, that you may heal him of his leprosy. Not much of an introduction. <laughs> uh, it, um, poorly written letter from what we have. The details omitted. The facts are skewed. The letter reads as though the king was to heal Naaman. And, uh, and that's that. Uh, unsaved people can complicate... Christian ministry. Well, Christians can complicate Christian ministry. So why would we expect when unbelievers are a part of the the process that it's going to come out well? So when Paul says, but, but, but the natural man, he makes that distinction, does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, nor can he know they're spiritually discerned. I was watching an episode of Dragnet, and in, in this episode, uh, someone stole from the nativity set in the Catholic Church the statue of, of what's supposed to be the baby Jesus. And the priest, in talking to uh, uh, the, the police, was sa- said this, and I'm quoting, the statue is the only Jesus they know. That's horrific. That is, I mean, the, the po- folks that wrote the script thought this was honorable. They thought that, oh, it's so touching. The only Jesus they know is this little statue. Well, that's not the Jesus of the Bible. That's a counterfeit. Defective views of God and his ways is a very serious thing. And that's why Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They shall be filled. It doesn't say, and your life will be, you know, just wonderful after that. In fact, it may even have more attacks to it, because the evil is aggressive. Uh, We have to study, we have to pray, we have to try to just obey the Lord, exercise grace and love and truth. What does evil have to do? Just show up. It doesn't even have to practice its moves. We're working all the time. Well, this is a defective life. We are, all of us, are We have this great defect of leprosy, of sin. And we are supposed to to, and expected to overcome. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, not loving their lives to the death. Well, verse 7, And it happened when the king of Israel read the letter that he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends a man to me to heal him of his leprosy? Therefore, please consider and see how he seeks a quarrel with me. Well, this is Jehoram, King Jehoram, one of the three stooges. And he's a pessimist. I mean, God has brought us out. He always brought us to the desert to die. Now, oh, this man wants to start a fight. He just is out. He's just always the bleakest outlook he can find. So his first response is unbelief. Yeah, he's breaking down. But he, that's how clumsy the letter was. Uh, it it does read as though he's expected to do it. It's it's almost as though in Syria they didn't want to send the letter. Just write, just heal the guy, leave out the facts. We'll come back to some of the scribal uh, banter in a a little bit. Anyway, uh, am I God to kill and make alive? He he asks the question. And in this question, he admits that uh, deity is not a theory, that there is God and God is superior. But of course, that's as far as it went in the right direction. Everything else about God with him went in the wrong direction, as is the case with so many. So the king, helpless, but the prophet was not, because the prophet is the chariot of Israel. He is the military force, and we're going to see a lot of this as we move through the chapters with Elijah. He's just going to be cleaning house, I and mean, he's just spiritually is just a dynamo. Um, not to take away from the other prophets, it's just that this was his ministry. Verse 8, And so it was, when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, that he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Please let him come to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. Now, of course, you want to just make all sorts of jokes, like, Why would you tear your clothes? You knit wet and stuff. But I'm not going to do that anymore than I just did. But uh, anyway, the things, uh, things have improved a bit between this prophet and this king because of that episode in the desert when they ran out of water. But they're not, they're still not the best. Uh, Elisha still knows who he's dealing with. Elisha never leaves his house to deal with this situation. Here he sends his servant, maybe Gehazi, maybe another. <laughs> the king did not send for the prophet. He doesn't even think. God was in none of his thoughts, not, not to... Not to uh, Appeal to God, but when Elisha volunteers to take this on, he's happy to get rid of this hot potato. Aggressive ministry is never to exceed the direction of God and the resources given. You can be Look, let's just be just just go into there and just preach the gospel. Let's do all of this. Yeah, well, you better make sure that this is the Lord, because many it's just so easy. It's such an amateur move to want to do something for God without God doing it. And the next thing you know you're in debt or you're, you're disillusioned and you become an apostate even at the at the worst of it because you thought God forsook you when you never sought him. And the lesson from here is that Elijah is been is giving is he is informed of this. He is brought into this. In verse 9, and Naaman went with his horses and chariot and he stood at the door of Elijah's house. It's profound the way that reads. He stood at the door of Elijah's house. And if it was just all happy after that, it would be make, make a nice uh, clip on the refrigerator. But it's, it's good that he's there, but it's not going to be an easy fit. Elisha does not venture out to see him. He does not touch the leper. It would have defiled him. Uh, our Lord, on the other hand, on the way to touching them, they were cleansed. <laughs> then Jesus put out his hand and touched him. And I'm telling you, that man was cleansed before he was touched. I am willing, be cleansed. Immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And God does things different ways to force us to examine them and think of things that we otherwise would not think of. That's what the Bible does. It forces us to consider things that we would otherwise pass by or miss altogether. And the more you read it, the more you will think. And the more you think, the more your faith will be challenged because in much wisdom is much grief, says the Bible. And you learn things, the wisdom builds up, but then you have a reality that's defective. And you're wondering, where's the God of Elijah? And you say, I'm right here. And we say, well, why don't you do more? He says, more what? <laughs> well, stop the problem. Well, the problem has stopped. You just haven't gotten to the end yet. Well, when's it going to end? When you get to heaven? Uh, that's the truth. Well, verse 10. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored to you, and you shall be clean. Ha ha! He sent a messenger. This is the king of the army. I mean, the general of the army. This is the top dog, and Elisha's treating him like a top dog. He sends a servant. And you know he's steaming. It's like, what? Where's the prophet? He doesn't bother to answer the door. Etiquette of the palace meant little to this prophet, this man of God. I mean, some of the prophets were very savvy in the palace. Isaiah, one of the greatest, very savvy with the... Court of the kings, without ever compromising his ministry. Naaman came full of his own importance and his own ideas. We run into this all the time. This is the beginning. Of, this is the beginning of a humbling process that this man needs if he's going to benefit from God. He needed to learn that healing would come, and it would come on God's terms. So Elisha will allow Naaman to speak to him later after the leprosy is removed and after he's learned his lesson. And he will learn his lesson. So he says to him, go go bathe. <laughs> he comes to the house with all of his money and his robes. And he's waiting for, you know, Elijah to wave incense over him or something. And Elijah has a servant go tell him, go bathe in the Jordan seven times because you're that dirty. <laughs> Seven times, no more, no less. Don't read too much. The number is just uh, is symbolic of you, this. Is, has to be completed. This is this. This is it, and he has to do it literally seven times, and that is the number that is the number of completion. Uh, verse six—the number six in scripture is the number for man. It's eight, in, in proper context, is a new beginning. The eighth day of the week is the next week. The you know, next day of the week, seven is the end of the week. Well, coming back to this. And your flesh shall be restored to you, and you shall be clean. Take it or leave it. Well, God is going to cleanse this leper inside and out. Luke chapter 5. Then he put out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing. Again, Christ dealing with leprosy, that emblem of sin. Verse 11. But Naaman became furious and went away and said, Indeed, I said to myself, he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of Yahweh, his God. And wave his hand over the place and heal the leprosy. So he had already made up a script for God to follow. And the prophet had to follow this script. This Naaman became furious. That is the face of self. Hating being not followed. uh, Hating being told, no. It's this way, not your way. And so he is furious in his pride. Now you can understand it, but it's not acceptable. Did he lose sight of why he came over 100 miles? If he left from Syria, he could have, come, could have been further, could have been a little less. It was still a long track. He got a lot of folks with him. No big general like that is going to travel on the road and subject himself to a raid. So here he is, another dictator to God. And he's not a dictator over people, though he may rule that way, as expected in those days. But to, he's dictating to God. He's specifying how God is to- supposed to conduct himself. You're supposed to have your man come out, say a few words, chant a few things, ask a few questions like, um, um, and, and then I'm supposed to be clean. And he went and said, indeed, I said to myself, he will surely come out. The preconceived notions that a human being can have to put keep God in his place, get God to conform to, if God has to conform to ideas, the ideas of people, if, if, God, if they can say, listen, this is how blessings will work, okay? <laughs> then, then you're not going to get to heaven. 1 Peter chapter 5. Likewise, you younger people. Now, he's talking about me, but it's you too. Submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another. And be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And it's hard when you have to submit to something you don't like. But it's part of the processes of development. And when you break out of that, you break. You break things. Things go wrong. And there's a whole world of people who violate this. And so likewise, you younger people, submit yourself to your elders he says, "And wave his hand over the place and heal the leprosy." So that t- this is a signal that the leprosy was local, but again, likely spreading or maybe just staying put, but doing its damage nonetheless. Verse twelve, and so he's fussing about. You know, I thought he was going to do this, and then he, he now he's going to uh, bash the Jordan. You now the Jordan is not that great. Well, a lot of rivers aren't. I mean. The time of the year. I've seen the Mississippi a few times. I wasn't too impressed with it. I know somebody was. Oh, you got to come in this season. Yeah, the the Hudson River up north is very beautiful. So I don't know. I've not been to these places in Syria. You can stand in Israel in the north, and you can look at Lebanon and Syria at the same time, but not see the rivers. Anyway. He's thinking, of course, the healing comes from the water. So logically, the better the water, the better the healing. That's probably part of his, his thinking. And so he's, he's arguing in verse 12. Are not the Abna and the Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. Now, when he's saying this, he's not, this is not. it would have been fair if he were asking the question, but he is barking. <laughs> he is mad about this. Um, Donald Gray Barnhouse was a pastor from years ago, along with the Lord. He's got some books out there. They're, they're not bad. But He has a quote here I want to share. Everybody has the privilege of going to heaven God's way or going to hell their own way. Actually, he got that from me. Even though he died before I ever entered the ministry. Uh, he did not get it from me in case. Like, I got to tell you that. Anyhow, uh, it is a profound, you know, you go to you go to heaven God's way, or you go to hell your, your way. And that's what we're seeing unfold right here. There are no substitutes for putting faith in Jesus Christ. He is the Lord and he is the Savior. Titus chapter 3, verse 5, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us through the washing of the regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. It's the work of God, not me earning it, and yet there are how many churches are out there preaching that you've got to earn your salvation. Um, And they, they do it in a very sneaky way. They'll say, no, we don't believe that, but then they put requirements on you to get saved, other than faith alone in Jesus alone. Verse 13, and his servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? How much more when he says to you, wash and be clean. So he told you to take a bath. I love this, that this servant is comfortable enough to approach the general in days when people just weren't that nice to to subordinates. And he's just comfortable enough to say, come on, we want you healed. And think about this. And Naaman doesn't say, shut up, get out of my face. He listens to him. His friends care for him. And that tells you about the character of the man. Going back to in the household where his wife, on the same page as him when it came to uh, not being arrogant. How many people have we come across in the scripture that were arrogant and you just want to see them you know, get hit by a bus and something? And we come across these, unbelie- <coughs> me, these unbelievers. And here they are being very nice people. So he says, what do you have to lose? He called, he refers to him, my father. It's a term of endearment. And it's a, the note of submission in it and, and love, and it's just so, you know. So we've got four witnesses to Naaman's chari- character. We have the king of Syria that's willing to do anything to have him healed, the, Is- the Israelite girl, his wife, and this unidentified servant. And meanwhile, What's Elisha doing? I wonder what he was doing in the house. There's no television. What was he doing? (laughs) Anyway, he's probably whittling a cane to hit the guy or something if he comes back. Anyway, uh, going back back to this, uh, where am I? Wash and be clean. It was an imperative. That's your order, General. Wash and be clean. Revelation chapter 1, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. So we have to maintain <clears throat> these truths. Otherwise, we're just reading a story. But it's, it's, not, it's more than a story. This is supposed to arm us for the work of the king. Verse 14. I have more verses, but we, we just got to move forward. It's too much. So he went down and dipped seven times in the Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. So again, all these, all the, you know, the uh, cleanliness is associated with leprosy, removing it, and sin, removing sin, cleanse, washed by the blood, new skin, new faith, and a new life, and that's that's it. Mark's Gospel, chapter eighteen. Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And his skin here is made, it says, uh, the flesh of a little child. What if Naaman quit? What if he said, I don't want to hear it. I'm going back to 200 miles. I've come 200 mile round trip for nothing. How many Christians give up over absolutely nothing? And that's what it would have been. Like you couldn't dip seven times. And it's a disappointing. And I just say that because we're all susceptible to it. Verse 15 And he returned to the man of God, he and all his aides, and came and stood before him. And he said, Indeed, now I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. And therefore, please take a gift from your servant. Well, he's humbled now. <clears throat> and this entourage likely took up the neighborhood. Could you, if they came to my neighborhood, they would be standing on my lawn. There'd be somebody, I'd be pretty angry. It's like, get off my lawn. All right, back, back to this. <laughs> so he stands again before the man of God. This time, he is before Elijah. Now, it's 25 miles. If Elijah's in, in Samaria, which is 20, about 25, 30 miles from the Jordan. So there you go. There's a 50-mile round trip at, at least just to the Jordan and back. So he goes out of his way to come back and thank Elijah. He's very grateful. He's a decent man. Uh, He he is a decent man. He's not, he's a decent man. All right. (laughs) It's a profound confession. And within this confession is included the exclusion of fake gods, and he has got to love this because he's probably, you know, you don't get to be a, a commander, a real commander of an army like this by enjoying lies. And in a religion, you, you want your religion to be true. And Naaman is cleansed and he stands in front of the prophet and he's just grateful. In verse 16, and he said, as Yahweh lives before whom I stand, I will receive nothing. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. So the king, of course, he still has much to learn. He's probably heard some things about Yahweh in his country. The Jews, of course, religion was a conversation. And he's trying to pay the prophet. And Elisha says, no way, I didn't do the healing. I I can't take anything for this. This... um, Uh, this is remarkable, because of course the king is saying, no, come on, take some. I can't just receive this. I have to give you something, and the prophet is adamant. No way. Verse 17, and this is another feather in Naaman's cap, to leave it, and not, you know, uh, just try to, well, just leave it on the steps. (laughs) Something like, petty like that. Verse 17, so Naaman said, then if not, please let your servant be given two mule loads of earth, for your servant will no longer offer either burnt offerings or sacrifice to other gods, but to Yahweh. This is, again, he said, okay, you won't take what I'm trying to give? Then I'm going to try to take something, and would you give it to me? And this request confirms that his heart has changed. Previously, his disparaging remarks about, you know, the dirty Jordan, and, and, and now he wants to take a load of, of soil uh, back to his land. He, he wants to spread promised land into the unpromised land. Sort of like us taking the gospel where it, where it isn't. This is one of the problems with building on another man's foundation. There's plenty of other places to go. Why, why would you do that? Why would you open a barbershop next to a barbershop? It'd be kind of you know rude and um, provocative. Anyway, uh, I, this is powerful to me. I, I, I think we all love this. Consider his insight in not wanting to stand on unpromised soil while worshiping Yahweh. I mean, it's just, he's like, well, you know what? Yahweh is God, and I've got to go back to the pagan land. Well, When I come to God, I'm going to stand on soil that he has blessed. It's uh, crude, but it is honored, and it is honorable, and there's more to the story. Verse 18, yet he's still speaking to the prophet. Yet in this thing, may Yahweh pardon your servant. When my master goes into the temple of Rimon to worship there, and he leans on my hand, and I bow down in the temple of Rimon, when I bow down in the temple of Rimon, may Yahweh please pardon your servant in this thing. Well, he's had 25 miles to think this through as he's coming back from the, the Jordan. So he's thinking about his new life. In worshiping, oh you know, man, what am I going to do with this? I got to do. I, yeah, I got to burn all of that. I got to rid of this. I, this is conversion, he's, as Paul wrote to the Thessalonians: how you turn from idols to God, full of grace and truth. Now, I mentioned the scribes earlier how they went. They probably when they when the king said send a letter to the king to heal name and they fine. just send a letter to him and not give any details. Here, Rimon is means in the Hebrew. Uh, pomegranate. And it is believed that this is a deliberate corruption on the part of the scribes. That the name of the god is Ramon, something similar. And they deliberately change it to pomegranate. And uh, because Ramon means thunderer, the, the god who thunders. And it's their, their version of Baal. And it's like when they write this story, don't write thunderer. Right pomegranate, (laughs) and I believe that because there's so many little sarcastic spots. You know, Ezekiel being one of the poster boys for his his use of the word idol. Anyway, God is not impractical. This is a profound section because he's saying, "Look, I have to go back to my land. It would be worse. It would be a bad thing if if I'm fired, and it's just I have to go into the temple with my boss." I don't mean the word. I don't worship his God anymore. But I have to be there. Can I, can I get a pass on this? And the prophet's going to grant it. He's, we don't have a petty God. Oh, no, 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 no. You got to. I mean, it, it's what's, what's in the heart? Not, not, not on the outside. And in his heart was, these gods are fake. And I turn from all of them. But I still have a duty to perform. And I think we have, imagine if you, were, you work in a government building and you have to type up a, a new disgusting law. Well, you don't believe that, but it's your job to type it. What are you going to do? I get? You know, okay, I quit. I, you know, I don't know that God always requires that of us. We have to be careful how we, we judge people in difficult situations. We remember Obadiah the servant. He's working with the king, in, uh, Ahab, and Jezebel. You don't get any worse than that. And yet, uh, he's just great man of God. He used his position to, to, to save lives. So I love this story, uh, this story of grace. Um, I, and when we get to Gehazi, almost all the commentators pile up on Gehazi. I think he was wrong. It was very bad what he did. But I have learned not to, not to shoot the wounded so quickly. Sometimes. <laughs> Sometimes you have to because they're shooting back. But it just, where's the grace? And, I, I, and so when we get to Gehazi sometime this evening, I, I hope it's a, a gracious but not a compromised grace as we discuss his his sin, there's three of them. He, com- he violates three commandments of the ten in one single swoop. Anyway, uh, then he said, Elisha is speaking now. He says, Shalom. That idiomatic phrase, go in peace. Uh, so he departed from him a short distance. He does not make an attempt to have him circumcised, to lay down to him, for him the dietary code, to convert him to mosaic law remember the sabbath to keep it holy he doesn't do any of this he was cleansed and he was given grace and he sent home he knows who god is and it was such a wise prophet because how do you how do you undo all of, of the the misconceptions on your doorstep our god is not a petty god that does not give us license to do wrong but there is a reality that we are forced to face, life is defective, and God knows it. Verse 20, but Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, (laughs) he goes, he catches up to him, "Uh, look, my master has, did I miss a verse? Because I can do that just to keep you on your guard. No, okay, but back to verse 19 before we read 20. Then he said, go in peace. So he departed from him a short distance, verse 20, but Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, Look, my master has spared Naaman the Syrian while not receiving from his hand what he brought. But as Yahweh lives, I will run after him and take something from him. So this is the, the rationale of Gehazi. It's, so looking at verse 20, but Gehazi is ominous, is it not? But Gehazi, <laughs> the music goes there. Jesus said, take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of things he possesses. Well, Gehazi didn't get that. The three commandments he breaks, first he's going to take the Lord's name in vain. As uh, when he says, as, as the Lord lives, and, uh, but as the Lord lives, I will run after him. Well, why is he mentioning the covenant name for that? Now, he's got to tell this story. And I think that's part of his confession in the end. But anyway, coming back to this, he takes the Lord's name in vain. This covetedness, he's desiring something that does not belong to him and he's trying to lay his hands on it. And then there's the false witness. My master said, and it's not happening. And so he's lying. The servant of Elijah, the man of God. He's dragging down the prophet into the story. That makes this a high-profile case because now Elijah is attached to this story lie. And if he doesn't get himself separated from it, then he goes down with it. And then the whole thing about sending the wealth to buy the prophets spiritual powers would be true in the eyes of the unbelievers. So Elijah's going to come down heavy on this sin because it is such a high-profile sin. Uh, he said, look, my master has spared Naaman here in verse 20. This Syrian, he's re, how he's justifying it while not receiving from his hand what he brought. And so he says, the pastor made a mistake. He had a chance to go ahead and get that building up, and he didn't take the money, or something like that. He knew he was wrong, because when we get to verse 24, he's going to sneak in and hide the stuff. So he knows he's trying to fly beneath the radar. And I go back to, at some point in the future, he tells the story with a spirit of regret. I don't believe that, you know, these things are magically done. I think that there's a human element to it, because that's how God works in spite of the miracles that are done, they're specified when they are imparted or that there's divine activity. Um, He says, but as Yahweh lives, I will run after him and take something. So there's the vanity. He's telling you and I told us, you know, I said, he's covering it with with religion. Coupled with his actions in chapter 8, when he's applauding the prophet, telling about his miracles, which ends up blessing the, the widow, um, who we believe she was a widow by that time. I just don't. I don't see this Gehazi as this. Some of these other characters in Scripture, like Saul and Amnon, and just other ones that are monsters. Nabal, uh, Gehazi goofed big, but I don't think that's the whole story. And he paid for it. So close and yet so far away. My master, as Yahweh lives. If he had only lived by that. And so while the prophet. Elisha met Naaman's needs. He did not meet Gehazi's greed. You know, it's not really greed, as you know, in the sense that greed wants too much. He doesn't want too much. He just takes a lot. So I don't know if that's still greed. You know, it depends on the definition you want to stick by. But I mean, there were—he takes only twenty percent of the garments and the silver, and doesn't touch the gold. So, you know, that's admirable. It's a thief that is just I'm going to leave some for the guy. <laughs> All right. So the deception, that's the 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 big false witness here. Why do people lie? Well, because they want something. Whether it is to be perceived as, you know, some hero or something, people lie for a lot of reasons. They always want something when they when they lie. And some liars are very good. And it helps to be able to detect who they are. Um <clears throat> Having seen so many miracles, you would expect more from Gehazi. Verse twenty-one. So Gehazi pursued Naaman. When Nahum saw him running after him, uh Naaman, Nahum, Naaman saw him running after him. He got down from the chariot to meet him and said, "Is all well?" And uh, yeah, so Gehazi pursued Naaman. He's going after this. Galatians. I want to. I, I have a file of sermons that I want to do. Maybe when I get to heaven, I'll get to do them. You know, the runners of the Bible. And here's one of them. This is not a good one. Some of them are good. This one's not. David ran to engage Goliath. (laughs) He couldn't wait to kill that giant. But here, Naaman is running to get the loot. He can't wait to get the money. Galatians 5, 7, we have some other runners. You ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Well, this applies to Gehazi. It applies to so many... Christians and churches that start off in the spirit, trusting God. And then the next thing you know, who needs God? We have this great plan. So they won't tell you that, but they're doing that. And that's a scary thing. I, tr- I try so hard not to, to do these kind of things. Anyway, uh, 1 Peter, as free yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bond servants of God. Well, Gehazi, didn't, he lost sight of that because he was free. But he used his freedom as a cloak to do wrong. He was supposed to be a bond, a willing servant. Bond servant versus servant. The difference is the bond servant is willing. And in the New Testament, the word is slave. But the New Testament writers are connecting it to the Old Testament bond slave. The slave that is willing versus a slave that is looking to escape. Verse 22. And he said... All is well. My master has sent me, saying... Now, that's a lie. Indeed, just now, two young men of the sons of the prophets have come to me from the mountains of Ephraim. Please, give them a talent of silver and two changes of garments. Well, there's poison in the pot. And the poison... The intentions of this man. Uh, He deceives in the name of Elijah's ministry. He's bringing down the whole ministry, with Potentially. But at the same time, he's trying to shield Elijah. He's trying to say, well, Elijah, you know, he's a good guy. He wants to help these other guys. Why don't you give me those garments back and some of the silver and, and we, can, we can help. So he, he's using religion to do it. <laughs> he's just making a mess. He's wrong through and through. Uh, but he's making it look like the prophet is considerate of other religious men. It's all a lie. Verse 23. um, Well, Elijah is considerate when he needs to be because otherwise it wouldn't have healed Naaman. Verse 23. So Naaman said, please take two talents. And he urged him and bound the two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of garments and handed them to two of his servants and they carried them on ahead of of them. So the two to two to two keeps coming up. because he's getting twice as much than what he asked for. And it's a little haggling. He has to urge him. He's like, take two. No, I can't take two. No, take two. No, come on. Take two. Okay, I'll take two. It's like, come on. Who are you kidding, man? Well, he's kidding Naaman. That's who. Um, So he gets 20%. Going by verse 5, we're told what what Naaman brings. He gets 20% of the silver, 20% of the garments, but he leaves the gold alone. He takes the loot, It's more than he could carry. So Naaman says, take two of my servants to do the heavy... You take the garments and they'll take the silver. Uh, Gehazi is saying to himself, jackpot, jackpot. Man, jackpot. Uh, (laughs) I'll be at the beach in the Mediterranean by Tuesday. Anyway, so I think it's not so much greed in that sense, in the strict sense of I want more than my share, but then it is more than his share, so you can figure that out for yourselves. Uh... I'm not going to read the differences in the two verses. I think it's already been established. Verse 24. When he came to the citadel, he took them in his hand and stored them away in the house. Then he let the two men go and they departed. So uh, the citadel, Samaria was a natural uh, fortification. This is why Omri left Terza as the capital and came to Samaria because just the the, the, the landscape Made it difficult to attack. And so this is probably a high ground there anyway, verse 25. And he went in and stood before his master Elijah and said to him, Elijah said to him, Where did you go, Gehazi? And he said, Your servant did not go anywhere. So he's lying again. And he's lying to the prophet in the prophet's house. Back to work. And he's got this tingling feeling inside that, man, when I get off, I'm going to buy everything on eBay. And, and just, order, or whatever. Uh, you get it in like in two days. So Elijah said to him, where did you go, Gehazi? What if Gehazi said, okay, you got me. I did it. I'm sorry. I lied about you. I took the, what if he did that? He wouldn't be a leper, but he doesn't. He said, your servant did not go anywhere. Well, he said it like this. Well, why do you ask? Your servant didn't go anywhere. (laughs) Balaam, Achan, Gehazi, Ananias, they coveted all four for financial gain. All four stole from God. All four were confronted, given that opportunity. In Balam's case, it was a donkey that <laughs> spoke to him, trying to just like, what are you doing? Come on, you're hitting me. Just stop it. You would think the prophet would say, I'm going back home. I'm just going to lie down. Donkeys talking to people. That's got to be divine. Uh, but he doesn't do that. He's just so blinded by greed. I just that's such an enigma. Uh, anyway, Uh, And all four were exposed and judged by God. Balaam, Achan, Gehazi, and Ananias. Verse 26, Then he said to him, Did not my heart go with the man when he turned back from his chariot to meet you? Is it time to receive money and receive clothing, olive groves and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male and female servants? Well, this means that God gave the knowledge to Elisha. God told him what had taken place. Well, it wasn't the two servants that came and said, hey, we just took the whole for of I They beat it back to Naaman. Uh, there is, in the original Hebrew, there is no with you. There is, did not my heart go when the man of God turned. And I think that is, there's a, there's a pain in that. There's a great hurt. Elisha is not happy about this. He's brokenhearted. He's going to execute judgment. It's it's like a son is going to hurt you a lot more than it's going to hurt me, uh, kind of a thing, which is always debatable, right? Uh, <laughs> all right. Anyway, uh, my my dad spanked me once, and I said to myself, I'm not going to give him another chance to do that. I got to work on not getting caught, and I was I, I mastered it. Anyhow, my brother just never figured it out. Just never figured it out. He's older than me. So he deserves it. Anyway... Back to this, to receive money, to receive clothing, olive groves, vineyards, says some British might say it, uh, sheep, oxen, male, female servants. The good life. Is it time for the good life? Is it time for us to enrich ourselves? This life is not where the wealth is. God will reward us if we hold. That's what he's telling him. And he did not hold fast. It would be worth it if you just hold on. Second Chronicles 15, verse 7. But you... But you be strong, and do not let your hands be weak, for your work shall be rewarded. I remember God bringing that verse up to me when I was just like, oh man, this is just so much work, so little reward. And God gently bringing that verse to mind. Uh, Then there's 1 Corinthians 5. Paul, talking about salvation, he says, If you hold fast that word which I preach to you, unless you believe for nothing. If you hold it. So much for, you know... Calvinistic theology, which is just a big disappointment. Anyhow, uh, we come back to the, oh, later, are we out of time? Where are we? We got a little time. Later in chapter 8, Ben-Hadad, the king, is going to bring a lot of gifts to the prophet Elisha. It doesn't say he takes them home, but he he probably did, and we'll get that in chapter 8. Uh, It's it's just so many intense stories surrounding this man's ministry to come. He's going to stare at the guy and start burst out crying, staring at him because he knows he's a killer, a murderer. I'm not, I'm not. I would never do such a... And he goes (laughs) back and does it. Human people are messed up. Man, they're defective. Uh, Anyway, verse 27. Therefore... The leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and your descendants forever. And he went from his presence leprous as white as snow. Non-lethal judgment. He got off off better than Ananias. So this is uh, intergenerational consequence. Now, it doesn't tell us he went and had children. In fact, it may have been a deterrent. We have no indication that he is a family man. He's serving the prophet. And it seems like those men were... Well, not always. Some of the prophets were married. We know that they can do that. Was Elisha helped one of the uh, wives? But as we read this, he may have said, "This is a I'm struck smitten with this, and uh, who's going to like me anyway after after this to show up at the party? Hi, and what is that? That's leprosy. Um, you know, Well what, what, what's your phone number? <laughs> Gosh." give them the number to dial a joke or something. I don't know. Anyway, uh, this is not... This, and I think that is the strength of what is going on here. This Again, these generational curses that some people try to hide behind is not biblical. It's a misunderstanding of the, the context of Scripture. If it were such a thing, then we would all be cursed forever because we all mess up. And how does that work? Who gets filtered out from the curse? Uh, anyway, and he went out... From his presence, leprosy as white as snow. So, Elisha now separates his ministry from the wrongdoing of Gehazi. Gehazi comes back in chapter 8, when the leprosy of Naaman, as we mentioned, was just that part of his body. Uh, maybe it is similar, or maybe he just got the, the fuller dose. But I close with this verse. Second Corinthians 6, verse 3. This was Paul's concern, and it was Elisha's concern. We give no offense in anything that our ministry may not be blamed. When you find people blaming a ministry, the New Testament tells us, back it up with truth. Don't accept an accusation against a pastor on the strength of one witness. And uh, just we, we, every story's got two sides. Sometimes they're both foul. Sometimes it's just one that's all messed up. Sometimes they're, it's, it's just like that. Anyway, let's, let's pray a little late. Actually, we've got another five minutes. Did I tell you the joke about... All right, let's pray. Our Father, uh, this evening, uh, there's so much to think about and process, and then there's there's the call to do it, to pull it off, to do the Christianity that we have been blessed with, knowing that you help, knowing that we have these defects that uh, hinder the growth. But thank you for your patience with us. May we show it to each other. May you get us all home safe tonight, we ask you in Jesus' name. Amen.